Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're going to be continuing our series, Israel 2018. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now as he brings us a message entitled, The Return of Jesus. Every believer is interested in the second coming of Jesus. Unfortunately, enthusiasm for the coming of Jesus has been dulled by endless speculation and conflicting theories and assumptions. And when we fail to distinguish the difference between what the Bible actually teaches from how we imagine it will be fulfilled, well, it only results in confusion. Let me see if I can say that again. The Bible makes some very real claims about what is to come in the last days, and that's good. We need to believe that. But here's where the confusion comes in. Some people add their imaginations to the teaching of the Bible, and then their imaginations become as important as what the Bible says, and then what follows is confusion. There can be a world of difference between our assumptions and what the text actually says. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Some time ago, I was in a coffee shop, and a man who knew that I was a pastor, I mean, he faced me squarely. There were other people in the room who knew both of us, so this was his chance to make a point, and I remember his question. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? And I said, I surely did, and and then I saw the fervor in his eyes. Clearly, he was not done, and he said, are you warning people that we are soon going cashless and that this was prophesied in the Bible? Oh, I didn't like where he was going, so I meekly told him that I wasn't warning anyone about going cashless, and I said, I don't really care when you have you had your coffee here, if you pay cash or credit card or debit, uh, you know, I, it just doesn't matter just as long as you pay. I mean, really? And he told me, don't you know it's in the Bible? The Antichrist is going to come and he's going to take away cash. And all these cards are paving the way for a cashless society. Well, this was a bad place to have an argument. And, and I would have ignored it except the others were there. And, and I had to say something. So, I told him that I'd been reading my Bible for years and years now, and I'd never found any place in the Bible that warned us about going cashless. Well, he looked upset. He told me that it's in Revelation 13, verse 17, and I asked, well, what does it say? And he said, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. You see, without that mark, no one can buy and sell. Well, I wasn't phased. I said, I I missed the part about going cashless. I mean, where's that? I told him that maybe in the time of the Antichrist, people will have electronic means of making purchases, but maybe they'll use Polish Zlotys or goats in their transaction. The Bible just doesn't say. So in the meantime, I was planning to pay my coffee with my debit card. Now, look, it's not good to poke fun at people. And I am trying, however, to make a point. There's a vast difference between what the Bible actually says about the end times and our endless speculations, and I have found that most of our arguments with each other about the end times are really about the speculations. Here's what I know with certainty. Jesus is coming again. Here's what I am also sure that no one knows. No one knows the time or the hour. It could be in a few years. It could be tomorrow. It could be 5,000 years from now. And even though I personally think the time is short, just in case I'm wrong and we go cashless for the next 1,000 years, I don't want believers to look foolish. Now, you know what I'm doing today. Today, I'm concluding a one-week series on encountering God through the Holy Land. 
And as a way of concluding this series, I want to talk about the second coming of Jesus and the future of the city of Jerusalem. But, but before I do, I have to deal with the elephant in the room. You know, for a brief period of time, a great many Bible teachers have said that when Israel returned back to the Promised Land in the year 1948, the prophetic clock started ticking. And this matter is one of those areas in which we have substituted plain Bible teaching with a vast host of speculations. See, I'm old enough to remember all those Bible teachers who used to quote Matthew 24, 32 to 34. It says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, that's, that's what Jesus taught. And then came the speculation. The fig tree, said these teachers, represents Israel. And so, when the Jews return back to the promised land, that is in 1948, then the generation that came back in 1948 will not pass away until Jesus returns. And, and from that dubious conclusion, filled with wild speculation, came the idea that in 1948, the prophetic clock started ticking. What makes this even worse is that a number of Bible teachers used to say that a biblical generation is 40 years. Well, then Jesus would have had to have returned by 1988. And then when 1988 came and went, a number of teachers said, well, a biblical generation is three score and 10. And if you don't know what that means, that's 70 years. Now, I'm recording this in 2018. We're exactly 70 years this year, and if Jesus doesn't return by December 31, well, there goes that nonsense. And when I say nonsense, it's because around this speculation, there is so much nonsense that has made a new generation of Christians completely uninterested in the subject of the second coming. Look, Jesus never said that when Israel comes back to the promised land, the prophetic clock starts ticking. It's not in the Bible. It's wild speculation. And it's time to say it. Lots of Bible teachers, even those that are godly in so many areas, got caught up in hysteria based on false assumptions, wild speculation. But still, a journey to Israel and to Jerusalem ought to fill God's people with a sense of expectation of the second coming of Jesus. So how should we begin? Of course, this is not a time to enunciate a full doctrine of the second coming of Christ, but there are two locations when visiting Israel that necessitate just such a conversation. The first is on the plains of Megiddo in Galilee, and the second is on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. Let's start with Megiddo. Megiddo itself is the site of an ancient city, today simply referred to as Tel Megiddo. Now, a Tel is a mound that contains the ruins of ancient cities. I mean, one is destroyed and another is built right on top of the ruins of the old city so that over many years, the mound or the Tel just becomes progressively larger. And Tel Megiddo is a very large site. It covers 15 acres. Some 20 cities were built there, one on top of the other, over a period of some 5,000 years. It was finally and ultimately abandoned in the 5th century BC, 
But in biblical times, for instance, we're told in 1 Kings 9.15 that Solomon built up that place as a part of a centralized fortress to control northern Israel from enemy invasion. The name Armageddon is a derivation of the Hebrew Har Megiddo or Mount Megiddo. It refers to that large mound with a city on top at one end of a large luscious valley. The valley itself is sometimes referred to as the Plains of Megiddo or also as the Valley of Jezreel. You'll find that in the Bible a great many times. And the place is significant because of the great many battles that have been fought there in history. The ancient Egyptian pharaoh, Thutmose III, fought a great battle against the Canaanites there before Israel arrived in the Promised Land. Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites there. Gideon fought the Midianites there. One of the great historic tragedies in the history of Judah happened there. The last righteous king, it was King Josiah, was killed on those plains as his army faced off against the Egyptian pharaoh Necho in that place. And Jeremiah composed laments as all Israel wept. That tragic battle signaled the end of Judah's revival of the worship of the Lord and eventually led to the complete destruction of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And since that time, many wars have been fought there. The Greeks, the Romans, the Crusaders, the Muslims, the British, and others have all fought major battles in that place. But why? Well, it's because it forms part of an international passageway between Egypt and all of Africa to the south, up to the north, Syria, Turkey, and much of the Middle East. It's a meeting place of nations. When ancient armies moved, they always moved through that place. And if you're going to try to stop them, that was the place where a confrontation could be had because the flat, broad valley will contain many armies. And so if you controlled the plains of Megiddo, you controlled a major trade route called the Via Maris. The place was economically and militarily essential. And the Bible seems to indicate that the last great battle will be fought in that very place. And whenever one stands on the mound at Megiddo and overlooks that valley, they often get a chill in their spine. April 28, 2019, Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and guests will be headed out for our third Israel experience. Each of the last two reminded us of the spiritual impact a journey to the Holy Land has upon the follower of Jesus. Walk where Jesus walked, stand where Moses, Abraham, Jacob encountered their God. Spend time in worship and reflect upon the stories of Scripture with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld and visit incredible sites such as the Garden Tomb, the Mount of Beatitudes, and the Sea of Galilee. This is a trip of a lifetime and we want to share it with you. For more information or to register, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Remember, space is limited, so register today and join us for the 2019 Israel Experience. And please remember, all costs associated with Back to the Bible Canada tours or events are paid for by the participant. Revelation 16.16 mentions Armageddon. 
The wider context speaks about the demons who go abroad to the earth, assembling the kings of the whole world, being assembled for battle on the great day of God Almighty. And then in verse 16, it reads, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, or the valley below Mount Megiddo, the valley of Jezreel. This for the book of Revelation symbolizes the great global final conflict between all that is evil, Satan himself against Christ. Whenever I have studied the book of Revelation, I'm struck by the amount of Old Testament references that make up that book. Listen to Joel chapter 3, verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Then later in verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. And then in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Or listen to the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And again, one more Old Testament quotation, and this one taken from Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Now, if I understand the chronology correctly, it seems that just prior to the Battle of Armageddon, Jerusalem will be savagely plundered, but not completely destroyed. Perhaps the planned third destruction of Jerusalem shall fail, but, but immediately after that, the nations are gathered in that fateful valley. The war in Jerusalem would seem inspires a global conflict as nations gather for the greatest savagery in human history, and in that time, Christ himself will take up arms and bring the nations of this world to their knees. And when Christians go to Israel, this broad valley of Jezreel causes us to ponder. The day is coming when the nations will enter into judgment. Christ will conquer and reign as Lord. See, I mentioned two places in Israel that remind us of the coming of the Lord. The plains of Megiddo are one and Jerusalem is the other. You know, some time ago, I sat with a Jewish guide on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and looking at the beautiful city of Jerusalem on the other side. And the young guide and I were engaged in a conversation. We were looking at the Golden Gate, and it's one of the entrances through the walls of Jerusalem that this one is actually bricked up. And I asked my young guide why that was, and he told me that it, that it was bricked off by the Muslim conqueror, Suleiman the Magnificent. See, the Ottomans later built a cemetery in front of that gate, and since the Jewish rabbis taught that when the Jewish Messiah came, that he would come by that entrance, therefore the, the Muslims actually sealed that gate to prevent the, the Messiah from returning. And I thought about that for a while, and then we both chuckled. We both didn't think the Messiah would be hampered by a few bricks blocking the gate, but, but then our conversation continued. 
why I asked him, did the rabbis believe that the Messiah would come through that gate? And he told me he really didn't know that part of the story. And and I found out later on that this is based on an understanding of Ezekiel 43 verses 1 and 2, that that the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Uh, My guide and I didn't know that then, but we continued to talk about the coming of the Messiah. And I said, I didn't know anything about that gate, but I did know where the Messiah was coming back. I had my Bible with me and I showed him Zechariah 14 verse 4. It says, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Well, my guide was interested. So we kept reading together in verses eight and nine. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And of course, the text goes on to speak about Jerusalem, verse 11. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. You know, when Christians visit the Mount of Olives, there is more to take in than we can possibly fathom. We know of our Lord's triumphant ride on Palm Sunday from that place. We know that he sat just a few days later on that very spot, teaching his disciples about his second coming. There he told his disciples of nations rising up against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, and about the gospel being preached to all nations, and then the end would come. And not long after, on that very mountain, he would pray deep into the night with his sweat becoming drops of blood as he agonized in prayer. We know he most likely ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And we know that when he returns, the very first place that his foot will touch this earth will be on that mountain. It's hard to take it all in when one stands on the Mount of Olives. The images, the memories of what Christ did there, uh, along with the destiny of that place, it's, it's overwhelming. I believe that Isaiah saw this very clearly. And I'm reading from Isaiah 2 verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, and before we read on, please understand this, this is a reference to the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, where Abraham bound Isaac to the altar, where where David's sacrifice and the plague was stopped, and where Solomon built his temple, and where Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin and made to be the one and only true sacrifice. Yeah, this is the mountain that Isaiah speaks about, so, so let's read it again. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The best possible view of the Temple Mount is from the Mount of Olives. So as you sit on the Mount of Olives and gaze at Jerusalem, the sacred destiny of that place is overwhelming. Jerusalem may be a city that has been conquered and reconquered many times. It may have seen more wars than can be grasped, but this city 
will become the city of peace for the whole world. To sit on the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem is to gaze at the destiny of the earth. But of course, the history of Jerusalem is not done. After 1,000 years are over, Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. See, many times believers have wondered what the new heaven and a new earth are like. Is there any relationship between them and the earth that is? And for that matter, is there a relationship between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem? And I think there is. See, let's go back for a moment when Jesus stepped out of his tomb. What was the relationship between his old body and the resurrection body that he had received? Well, a great deal. His old body was not there. It had been transformed. And unlike the old body, the new body was perfect, never to suffer decay, not subject to human weakness. I believe this is the same kind of relationship that will exist between the old earth and the new one, between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And such is the story of the promised land and the story of Jerusalem. It stretches back to the very beginnings of God's plan of redemption, and it stretches forward all the way into eternity. A trip to the promised land is a trip to study and to revel in the reality of our faith. It's a time to recapture a renewed zeal for the Word and a renewed hunger for the God who loves us and gave His Son for us. And if you can ever do it, encounter God in the promised land. John, thanks so much for a great series. Uh, let me ask you a question, though. You know, n I realize not everyone's going to have the opportunity to go to Israel, and that's okay. You've said that before in a previous message. That's okay. But if you are thinking about going, how would you encourage people? I think, first of all, I'd say, Ben, it's safe. Uh, a lot of people are saying, I'm afraid to go because I, I understand that I might not be safe. And I always say to people, look, it's a lot safer to go to Jerusalem than a lot of North American cities. Uh, think of it that way. Uh, the second thing I'd also say is uh, be prepared uh, to be renewed in heart. I mean, go uh, thinking of yourself on pilgrimage rather than on vacation and spend the time in making sure that, you know, you, you, you spend the time in prayer, um, you, uh, make sure that you read your Bible regularly, uh, and, and take your Bible with you as a map and as a guidebook that will uh, teach you what it is that you're going to learn. So uh, some of those things are what I say. Thanks, John, and thanks for joining us for this series this week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Our second edition of Dr. John Newfeld's booklet, What is the Gospel?, has just arrived and is ready to go. This booklet provides the essentials of the gospel, God's provision, the price that was paid, and our hope for eternity. This is a wonderful tool for the follower of Jesus who needs to be assured, or for the one searching to discover what a relationship with Jesus really means. Right now, we want to offer what is the gospel as our free gift to anyone who's never contacted us before. If this is your first time contacting us, we'd be blessed to send you Dr. John's booklet, What is the Gospel?, as our gift to you. 
We believe it will encourage, inform, and transform your understanding and relationship to Jesus. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 to receive your free copy of What is the Gospel? 